Hello, welcome to Lamniforms Radio. My name is Ian Corey, and I'm the songwriter in the band Lamniforms. Uh, today, instead of interviewing a musician about one of their latest projects, I wanted to share a conversation about the Mars Volta, the widely popular and critically despised progressive rock band from El Paso, Texas. It's been 20 years since singer Cedric Bixler-Zavala and guitarist Omar Rodriguez-Lopez formed the Mars Volta out of the ashes of At The Drive-In, and nearly 10 years since their final album, Nocturnicate. It feels like the band is due for a critical reevaluation that places their surreal and eclectic sound in proper context. Joining me for this conversation are composer and Lambdaforms bassist Frank Meadows, as well as musician and Mars Volta superfan John Mondragon. Thank you for listening. So n- normally I, I would do like some sort of ice-breaking conversation, but I feel yeah. like that's what we've been doing for the yeah. past <laughs> week. <laughs> so instead, I want to start this conversation with four syllables that you may not have thought about in a while. Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> um, I was hoping we would touch on Beto. Hell yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're getting close to the inauguration, and that led me to start thinking about, you know, the former golden boy of the Democratic Party, Beto O'Rourke, when yeah. he used to be running for president. And it occurred to me that the only policy that I could remember him saying during that whole campaign was that he hoped that the Mars Volta would get back together (laughs) if he became president. And so we're here to talk about the Mars Volta today. (laughs) He's, he's getting that clutch Mars Volta fan vote. (laughs) Clearly worked out great for him. (laughs) It definitely grabbed my attention. (laughs) So yeah, this is a band that I feel like, has been not lost to time because they're still a very popular band. They've got a very strong fan base, but because they haven't been around for almost a decade now, I feel like it's worth revisiting why they were important, what made them great, how they were received when they first came out and what we think of them now. Definitely. Uh, So just, just quickly, I want to hear how, both of you individually came across the band and what your early experiences were with the Mars Volta. I got into Mars Volta at a time that I was getting into uh, Fugazi and a lot of the other, I I can't remember whether or not I heard at the drive-in or Mars Volta first, but it was in a time in my life that I was exploring like hardcore in general and post-hardcore and its intersections with my already established taste in indie rock and some jazz that I was into at the time. And uh, I can't remember the circumstances around it other than being, you know, around 15 or 16 playing in bands and just being totally blown away by their ability to, it was Delouse was definitely the first one I heard Mm -hmm. Uh, their ability to combine so many different styles. uh, And even to the degree that I even understood the styles that they were hinting on, that they were combining at the time and I got really obsessed really quick and remember Bedlam coming out and that whole campaign and saw them on that tour they've kind of they've kind of stuck around Um, I have I honestly sort of stopped paying attention after Octahedron 
and wasn't really that invested in Nocturnicate when it came out. So I definitely listened to it and sort of gave it like a passing glance as this band that I knew that I loved, but it definitely, I sort of moved on by that point. Um, So it was really fun for me to sort of take a look back at the whole catalog in a way and give especially those last two records more of the time of day. And how about you, John? So for me, uh, in high school, I started playing bass at age 14 and I was in into a lot of like emo bands, basically, and also into Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> so I was really into Chili Peppers and, and Flea and all that stuff and Frusciante, of course. And the reason that I became aware of the Mars Volta was just purely because of that connection. And initially I was like, this isn't anything like Red Hot Chili Peppers. Like, how is John Frusciante and how are Flea on this record? Like, this makes no sense. And that was almost like way cooler to me because I was like, like seeing them musicians that you already knew for a specific style, like branch out completely into something totally different. I really appreciated that. And the first time I heard Francis the Mute, which was the first thing I heard from any of them that like blew me away completely. And I downloaded it on Kaza, shout out Kaza. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, Francis to mute, I got deloused and then went into at the drive-in got relationship of command and was like completely obsessed. And this was like weeks before Amputexture came out. So I got to experience all that Amputexture tour, all that weird stuff with four drummers on the same tour, which we'll talk about later. And yeah, so that, that was in high school, like when I was like just getting into Prague, getting into tool. So like it hit at the perfect time when like my brain was ready for it, but also still not ready for it. Cause is anyone really ready for the Mars Volta at that age? Totally. And, and I had no idea about, you know, them as people or anything, but when I started to look into the more, you know, that was really the first band for me that in the genre of Prague that I could identify as a, you know, 100% like Latino person that, you know, was, was someone in that, in that group that was making that music that I already liked. Cause it was a genre that I already knew of as like, yeah, this is the people that make it. This is the kind of bands that make it. And Mars Volta was like totally outside of that. So I was immediately drawn to them for that reason. Word. Yeah. 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 I'm glad you mentioned tool because that's how I came across them <laughs> um, because I was a big lurker on the tool shed forum way back in the day which was oh, like the wow. tool fan forum yeah tool shit the francis the mute album art was like a lot of people's avatars oh i believe like, it so i see i saw them get recommended there and that counted for a fair amount but then once i also saw like the stoner kids in my high school from like you know these like puerto rican kids living in hell's kitchen were also blasting them and i was like <laughs> Oh, something is really up here. Like this band is reaching a whole bunch of different people for a whole bunch of different reasons. Like this is definitely worth checking out, you know? That's super awesome. Yeah. And I just imagine any other band that we can all have had an experience with coming from different angles, specifically someone who was into hardcore coming at them. And then for Prague and hardcore are just like not supposed to be natural allies in, in yeah. like the traditional like script of like the birth of both of those genres as being natural enemies. So the fact that they were able to come, I was able to be listening to like Fugazi make long hardcore songs and then them be the logical extension of it. And then mm-hmm. I don't know. And at the bands like at the drive-in started to break down those barriers and <clears throat> give us Mars Volta, you know? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so we should start with at least some cursory overview of the at the drive-in material it's not my strong suit necessarily because i came to them after kind of going through my whole mars volta journey and then being like oh i guess i should check out the other band too 
so I'll let either of you kind of give me the rundown on why was at the drive-in a big deal. They were a big deal to me again, because they were my discovery of them was sort of wrapped up in the larger style of, you know, making a, like I didn't really associate or identify with myself as like an emo person at the time, but they definitely scratched all those itches that I feel like one would get out of being really into emo music. And the more that I've learned about like the roots of their style and, and like that DC hardcore scene, like rights of spring, all that stuff, it makes sense that they are considered in some degree an emo band, but I, I just think that their journey as musicians is really meteoric and amazing and sort of embodies to me like totally a kind of ideal narrative of like the young kids who just like tore their asses off playing really intense music and just the window of time in which they were able to make such uh, great records is pretty remarkable. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I was listening back to in prep for the podcast. I mean, relationship of command is the one that is seen as the, the magnum opus. And I definitely think that's like properly, I would agree. Uh, yeah. Applied, but then things like acrobatic tenement and in casino out are just great snapshots of, how quickly they were able to change and develop. Like you can, I think you can already sort of see Cedric and Omar's style sort of like, or the rate at which they were willing to advance themselves. And that ended up being obviously the the reason why the band broke up is because half of the, the non Cedric and Omar contingent were wanting to stay put in the sort of a more sort of like commercial, like pop punk box. But uh, I think throughout the course of those records, you can see, how quickly they were able to like going from something that's so DIY and jangly as acrobatic tenement to relationship command in the structure of like four years is pretty remarkable. Oh, definitely. It was a really short period. All right. I'll give the spiel if you want the at the dragon yeah. spiel. <laughs> spiel <Yeah. away. laughs> so we'll start at the beginning here. So they started at the drive-in pretty young. Um, their first album, Omar played bass. So Omar wasn't even the guitarist and at the drive-in at the beginning, Cedric was the vocalist, but it was still pretty rough. And, I feel like the sound change from Acrobatic Tenement to In Casino Out was pretty drastic because In Casino Out, they had a lot more polished production, even though it still had that like, you know, like post hardcore like sound. But Acrobatic Tenement almost felt like more DIY, more like recorded, like live almost. And then In Casino Out, I feel like they really started to become like a, a studio band that also happened to be awesome live. And Relationship of Command, they really like solidified their like their likability rather I'd say and in uh, relationship of command especially was where they started to really experiment with like a lot of the prog elements where they you know brought in synths and keyboards and a lot of like more interesting song arrangements that weren't that didn't really sound like at the drive-in necessarily I, I will say at the drive-in what I learned from them after the Mars Volta was I guess the importance of the the regional scene that they were to the El Paso music scene because Mars Volta almost seemed like more of a a cross country band where they they brought musicians from all around the country and it didn't seem as specific to the El Paso Texas music scene but at the mm-hmm. drive-in they were in it for so long and and so young that it, it felt like when they left at the drive-in they were like almost leaving the El Paso music scene specifically and moving into like the bigger stage of like you know the national touring and and national well i guess relationship of command they were already playing on late night and they were getting huge but basically for me at the drive-in was always it always felt more of a local vibe Um. and the mars volta did not have that even though you know 
they they were their own thing but that's why at the drive-in for me was really interesting because it was like my view into that scene into like all their other associated side projects and yeah just just seeing how they went from post-hardcore to prog it was a very logical transition from at the drive-in to you know the early mars volta and it was super cool to see and especially cool to see how they split into the mars volta and sparta and you know even though that the drive-in breakup was pretty pretty rough it sounds like a lot of a uh, lot of splinter uh factions between you know omar and jim ward and and a lot of a lot of bad blood it sounds like but uh it was a really interesting place to start in their career so there's a story there's a story about how one of their first uh tours was a 2000 mile tour only in texas oh wow <laughs> yeah and Did not know that. yeah and so i think i think you're you're dead on about how it is very much tied up in the regionalism and you know and that's such a big part of being a member of uh, the community of that type of music is being so like kind of rooted in a scene and sort of representatives of it on a national scale. Once you hit a certain popularity. Yeah, definitely. And at the drive-in I found really interesting too, because you know, not only was it that transition in sound, but it was also kind of like that was the intro to their live energy. Like, like it almost felt like they took that intensity from at the drive-in and like went even crazier with the Mars Volta. Like, Sparta was a post-hardcore band and arguably had more aggressive elements early on, but also didn't feel like they had that live energy that they would, you know, evolve and bring into, especially Omar and Cedric into Mars Volta. Yeah, I mean, like, there's this great clip of them playing Letterman where, like, it's not exactly the one-arm scissor performance good performance yeah you know yeah a one-armed scissor it's like this you can if you know the song you can hear the song and what yeah. they're doing up there but it's more about the visual of like these two dudes with like enormous chaos just losing their minds on yeah. stage like leaping off every bit of equipment that they can get their hands on and that was their introduction like, to like everyone at like you know the mainstream population that had never heard of them that that was what they were getting they were like this crazy band i always go back to the big day out video uh, where they're playing festival in Australia. There's a part in it where the the video from that show where Cedric's yelling at the audience to stop slam dancing. Oh yeah, and, and that just feels like such vintage like Ian Mackay to me too. It's like basically kind of taken out of the Fugazi playbook, which is like I think it's really sad when the only way you can express yourself is through slam dancing. You saw that on the TV. You didn't get that from your best friend. <laughs> and it's just like man, hell yeah. Legendary. I identify with that so much because it's just like they're they're just true DIY lords in a oh, lot yeah. of ways. You know, yeah, definitely. That's kind of what makes the uh, the switch to the Mars Volta really interesting for me is because they kind of come. Like the minute that they are a legit band, like their debut album, they have this insane label support and like industry support behind them. Like suddenly, as you mentioned, they've got like Flea playing bass for them and Rick Rubin producing. And so yeah. it's such a crazy shift from being like these kind of like DIY punks to being this prog band with like a ton of industry power at their backs. Like, how do you see that transition? Well, lest we forget Iggy Pop's uh, guest appearance I was just on about to ma- mention that. That was, for me, that was like the, okay, this is when they really blew up. When you have In Casino Out, which was like an indie record, basically. You know, it, was, it wasn't it was like played on radio, really. It was like, it was definitely gaining popularity and gave them notoriety, but it wasn't like at that point where any random person around the world would hear it, you know, reliably, where I think Relationship of Command was at that point. And they also got mm-hmm. Iggy Pop on the record. Like at that point, you know, you've made it. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so you have some notes down here that there was a band in between at the drive-in and the Mars yes, Volta that I literally had never heard of before. Oh, really? <laughs> so, um, well, uh, one real quick thing with at the drive-in that I just want to, you know, mention before we move into de facto, but I just sure. wanted to, for people that aren't familiar with at the drive-in, like kind of just explain their sound a little bit and how it would lead into de facto and lead into, you know, tremulant. But, um, at the drive-in, their transition was was basically into from very angular, kind of a melodic, li- like like lightly melodic, mainly just aggressive, kind of more like punk, you know, jangly music, um, into in Casino Out, which 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 started bringing that melody, uh, still keeping it pretty punk, but Relationship of Command had a lot of you know, melodic singing, whereas just like before Cedric was just like shouting lyrics and, and really that, that transition into the like likable, accessible melody of relationship of command that still had that energy would, would lead into Mars Volta. Cause in, in Mars Volta, he wasn't really doing any aggressive screaming, any, any sort of, you know, post-hardcore vocals. It was, it was more just like, like singing, you know? So mm-hmm. for at the drive-in vocally, I think Cedric's transition was really interesting, but Omar especially was really interesting to me because uh, he went from pretty just pretty much straight up distorted guitar to having all these spacey, wild psych rock, you know, prog effects on Relationship of Command, all these delays and phasing and all this, you know, Pink Floyd stuff like that. I feel like was a huge part of at the drive-ins evolution and Omar's evolution into like being this composer and like making all this like super unique music but um to now transition into de facto basically after at the drive-in broke up when they started having tensions between omar cedric and jim ward and then you know they broke off started sparta what happened was omar started playing bass cedric started playing drums and they met with ike owens and jeremy ward jeremy ward was cousins with jim ward of sparta and ike owens you know was just like a a well-known keyboard player of I'm not sure what region Ike was from. I believe it was Texas as well. Uh, and yeah, they knew Jeremy Ward through Jim and everything. So the four of them started jamming Jeremy Ward being a sound manipulator, kind of like ambient musician. They were basically like, we're starting a dub reggae band. Like we are going to play live. We may or may not record. We're going to jam and people are going to watch and it's not going to be anything like at the drive-in. And they wanted to go in the complete opposite direction from at the drive-in. And, you know, they had Ike playing keys, Jeremy Ward making all these like trippy, you know, dub reggae soundscapes, Cedric playing drums, which was already like super weird to see, but really, really cool to see that Cedric was such a good drummer. And then Omar playing, you know, these dubbed out bass lines. Really, when I first heard de facto, it was exactly how... I read what de facto was like. It's like, all right, this is the lineup. This is what they're playing. This is what it sounds like. And it was like kind of a jam band. It was really interesting, but I feel like the end formula for the Mars Volta sound was like almost at the drive-in plus de facto. Like it makes more sense in context of hearing both of Mm. them combined. It's like they had to subtract the Sparta and then add something else in. So they yes. made de facto to like create that extra ingredient to fill that space in their sound. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And, and they had, that was where they first intro, uh, introduced the like dub elements, the salsa elements, a lot of the like more uh, free form composition. They did record like de facto has music, but 
even the recorded music still feels like a live jam, you know? And I feel like if they didn't go through that, the Mars Volta would have been different because the Mars Volta was a good combination of the two, the like, the like well-composed, you know, songs with these like long form jams. So. Sure. So do you feel like the de facto stuff is like worth checking out or does it still feel sort of embryonic to where they were headed? I think de facto is really interesting in in the context of where it happened in their careers. I never really got into it in, in the sense that I'm like, I really need to listen to this de facto record. Like I heard it and I really enjoyed it and I still do. It's just not a regular listen for me, but it is absolutely worth checking out in my opinion, just as this like cool little time capsule of like an era that, you know, that, that they're never going to reunite. They're never going to play shows again, you know, rest in peace, Ike, rest in peace, Jeremy Ward. Mm. Um, it was, it was purely like this, this experiment for one single era that, that was just super interesting to witness. Yeah. I also think that it marks sort of another, a broader transition in their approach, which is that it's music that doesn't really demand that you listen to it. <laughs> like it's a record being made just as a record, as a, as a document of a project and an idea. It's, it's, they definitely, definitely. got off this uh, industry treadmill and were just making a record that they wanted to make. And it, yeah, it's the nature of it. I don't think really demands much attention other than just interest it felt like Mm -hmm. to me a vehicle for experimentation for them after being so locked into like the later at the drive-in you know stuff like touring major label commitments all the stuff they were like we just want to jam and make cool grooves like that was basically what de facto seemed like to me but it was also just like their introduction to working with ike and jeremy which were you know, big players in early Mars Volta. So, and that, that same shift in creative mentality that Frank is describing, I think kind of carries over throughout the rest of the Mars Volta career and onward. Like Omar is probably like one of the most prolific dudes out there in terms of just like constantly recording and constantly releasing music. Like the idea that anyone could like keep up with it is sort of besides the point. It's just like, this is the workflow of like constantly making things. Some of it may get, promoted up to being part of the Mars Volta. Like there's a few songs that show up on his like solo records that get reworked later and whatnot. But definitely the, the thing that I feel like is important is the work itself, like constantly working and constantly experimenting. Yeah. It was interesting to me that at the drive-in seemed like they worked at all of their pace and everything after at the drive-in seemed like it was more delegated by Omar's working pace and they, everyone else kind of went by that. And that, that was mm-hmm. when, when he really started to, become the the creative visionary of everything whereas just being the guitarist before you know like he was a big component but he became the guy after you know de facto into tremulant let's go on to tremulant then this is a record that's kind of difficult to find it's not on streaming services uh, so you kind of have to like go into the youtube hole if you want to listen to it and i'd say it's it is worth checking out i like it absolutely worth it i love tremulant it's a very very weird post-hardcore record that's like not quite prog yet but you can tell that that's where they're heading it's prog in the sense that the third of three songs is eight and a half minutes long (laughs) fair enough (laughs) i think Um, maybe now's a good time to maybe sort of reestablish what we mean by prog because i i've never it took me until I got much older to even really relate them to Prague and like understanding things like King Crimson and uh, the Canterbury rock. scene. Yeah. Well, I under yeah. It almost feels like the Mars Volta was always sort of like Prague by accident. Like it just happens to be the easiest thing to call the fact that their songs are of the length that they are and contain the amount of sound experimentation that it does. 
Mm-hmm. I wonder how we feel about how it fits into cleanly into the idea of being them being a progressive rock band, other than just that it's a ambitious rock band. <laughs> right. I my take on it is that there are definitely some things about them that are self-consciously like nods towards the progressive rock era. You know, the fact that they used hypnosis art for several of the, like the first two of their records and the, yeah, the long extended ambient sequences in the middle of the songs, lots of odd time signatures, lots of, you know, quick changes and more linear thinking. But if you actually look at the, the building blocks that they're using inside of those complex structures, it's completely different than the sort of stuff that the mainly British and European progressive rock scene was doing in the seventies. Yeah. It's worth noting like historically at this point, like there's this meta narrative that you alluded to earlier about how like punk killed Prague, which isn't really true because after this happened, then Prague bands started writing number one hits. So who really won? And there are examples (laughs) of punk bands trying, attempting to make Prague and Prague bands attempting to make punk. So they they do have that established relationship as weird as it is. I just feel like Prague is such a dirty word to a lot of people that I think it's important to sort of unpack it a little bit is all I'm saying. It was especially a dirty word by the time that the Mars Volta started releasing music. Like the biggest prog band in the world at that time would have been Dream Theater, who are like the most like uncool band of all time, it might be (laughs) fair to say. Totally. And and this is coming from one of the biggest Dream Theater, extreme theater fans I know. (laughs) It takes one to know one is all I... I I was previously one of the least cool people on Earth because I was a Dream Theater fan. So I I have an answer to this question real quick uh, before I forget. Sure. Uh, So I would say that calling the Mars Volta simply Prague is a bit limiting only because they didn't only draw from Prague even though a lot of what makes the Mars Volta the Mars Volta is in line with a lot of the classic prog bands. I mm-hmm. think mainly that it's really interesting seeing how their their style, like like personal like fashion sense and musical style was so influenced by 70s prog, by like bands like King Crimson and Yes and Genesis and all that. And, and seeing how Omar basically went from at the drive-in to being like, okay, I'm the new Robert Fripp. Like that was kind of his, his methodology with the Mars Volta was like, he was more so taking their attitude and their, their style, their style of arrangement and composition and recording and all this stuff, like drawing from it rather than being like, we are going to write prog rock. Like, I feel like that, that is more in line with what the Mars Volta were to me in context of prog. Yeah, totally. I think there's like also a, a crucial difference is that, you know, it may seem like it's stating the obvious, but the fact that these British prog bands were all growing up and going to like art school and stuff in England and, you know, we're drawing from like pastoral British folk music styles and whatnot yeah. in order to like build out their compositions. Uh, Cedric and Omar, you know, are from El Paso, Texas, which has about as far away oh, <laughs> in, totally. in many ways from the Great Britain as you can get. Omar's also spent his childhood in Puerto Rico, I believe. Yes. You can correct me if I'm wrong on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so the styles of music that they're influenced by and interested in exploring are just have no relation to the sort of music that the Prague guys were doing. So you're right. Like they're taking this general like compositional ethos and workflow 
but they're using that to explore punk rock and salsa and dub and all these other like funk all these other styles that are not on the radar of bands that just want to sound like yes yes definitely so tremulant um, we kind of took the circuitous route, but that's yeah. how this podcast is going to go. It's a circuitous mm. band. <laughs> okay. So the, the, the quick tremulent spiel. So tremulent was interesting because it's only three songs. These three songs were not the only music that were written during this period after def- or rather during de facto, you know, slightly near the end of de facto. Um, the entire lineup of de facto started jamming with John Theodore on drums and Cedric was doing vocals again and Omar was playing guitar again and they brought Ava Gardner into the mix as bassist who oddly enough Ava Gardner is now the bassist for the pop star Pink. Ava Gardner's father was a really well-known jazz bassist his name is escaping me but uh, she was not she did not appear in any other release even though I absolutely adore the bass lines on Tremel and I think they're fantastic. That made me a fan of hers forever. Actually, I, I don't know why I forgot this, but before they started jamming with John Theodore, they actually were jamming with Blake Fleming from the band Dazzling Killmen, who are another, you know, pretty aggressive, like pro, uh, proggy punk band. That's that's one of the prime examples, I would say, of a punk band that started to experiment with, you know, those those prog tendencies. But he started jamming with them. They wrote a bunch of music. They weren't really feeling it. And then John Theodore got brought into the mix. And once they started jamming with John Theodore, that really solidified the, the early Mars Volta lineup. That was them. The, the sound of Tremulant compared to the later stuff is interesting because it still kind of has those at-the-drive-in elements. It's still mostly rooted in the genre of post-hardcore, I would say. But you can tell that it's going somewhere more experimental. The only other thing I'll mention is they got signed to Gold Standard Laboratories, which was an indie label run by Sonny K. Sonny K was in the band The VSS. They were a really awesome, like, synthy post-hardcore band that I recommend everyone check out. Uh, he was the head of GSL, and he was one of the biggest reasons that, you know, Tremulant was released. And that was basically the early era. Like, there, there isn't too much to talk about. You just got to listen to the EP. And, and it was sort of released consciously as a preview right i mean was it marketed as we have another album coming out and this is sort of a our sort of like teaser ep or i don't believe delouse was in the mix because uh because for delouse you know they they had didn't have ava gardner they didn't they they just had a different thing going with delouse i feel like tremulant was like that was its own era and then it kind of fell apart and then they kind of like brought it back before delouse um, yeah. It didn't. It didn't feel like it was intentionally connected to Delaust, in my opinion, uh, even though it was only a year removed. But just based on their, you know, member changes and the stories I've read about all the different member changes, it seems like it was very intentionally like this is our new band. We want to release something, and that was what Tremula was. Yeah, I, I'd like to take a brief, put a brief pin into the the constant lineup changes thing, because it occurred to me that the Cedric and Omar relationship is actually not dissimilar to the Steely Dan setup where they're kind of like the nucleus that everything else revolves around. And they're absolutely able to bring in all these different musicians for whatever the purpose is of Morris Volta during that era. I mean, they're a band that has had a ton of different musicians in them that, get kind of brought in the band like grows and contracts to the needs of the music or to the interests of that core creative nucleus. And as a result, they cycle through a lot of like the top level session players for whatever instrument they've got. 
I am not knowledgeable on Steely Dan, but that is really fascinating. <laughs> I will say yes, as as a Dan head, I would say it's it's similar. Although there do there are some more constant players like Juan Aldrete is there for most of the records after he comes in. There is a sort of a band sense to it, but I think that more of a band sense to it than there is in Steely Dan. But I think it. I'm pretty sure on every Volta record, it does say the Mars Volta is Cedric and Omar. For this record, the band is this. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's true. And so you mentioned it kind of like things sort of fall apart again before Delouse and the Comatorium, their first full length record. This band has had like a, a, and you've alluded to this previously too, this band has kind of like a really dark morbid history like they're kind of surrounded by a lot of death and a lot of like drug addiction and just general like bad vibes sort of circle this band at every corner so do you want to sort of talk about how that affected and informed the work on delast i would say a a good starting point is to mention near the end of at the drive-in around relationship of command era some of the members of at the drive-in um particularly omar and cedric i can't really speak to anyone else were um regularly using heroin regularly on opioids and during de facto as well omar cedric and jeremy ward to my knowledge were all using and immediately before delaust delaust was written to to sort of commemorate and speculate into the mindset of a friend of theirs that intentionally overdosed on heroin, went into a coma, woke up from the coma, and jumped out of a window and committed suicide. And DeLoust was Cedric speculating into like this fantastical, magical realism world that would occur within the mind of said friend when he was in a coma and that would lead to, you know, his, his suicide. That was the mindset that Delouse was created, you know, already regarding, you know, a, a really morbid uh, circumstance with their friend. And to make matters worse, about a month before Delouse's release, after it was already written and recorded, Jeremy Ward overdosed on heroin and, and passed away as well. So two major deaths before the release of their first record, automatically made that a record about death you know under the circumstances of death and especially jeremy ward being a member of the band that already made a record about death even more you know that much more you know crushing and and morbid um but that yeah that was a circumstance to was released under yeah it's an interesting record for its time in that way i think because it is still close enough to the sound of post-hardcore that it almost does feel like this sort of like tangential emo record. You know, the fact that it is this like very morbid, very emotionally distraught album. Yeah. uh, But filtered through the incredibly psychedelic kaleidoscopic perspective that this particular band brought to that subject matter. You know, it's the kind of thing where you could see people that would be maybe into the more dramatic emo stuff, checking it out on that basis and not being ready for what hit them. The only other thing I'll mention is, uh, so the friend of theirs was named Julio Venegas and he was friends with Cedric and he was also friends with a lot of the El Paso music scene. So he was considered to be uh, a really close friend of At The Drive-In, a really close friend of you know Cedric and Omar. After Jeremy Ward's overdose, that was the um, the deciding event that caused Cedric and Omar to to quit opioids like permanently like they never went back it was a huge shock to them and they 
they were basically like, we're not having any more death. Like this is it. We're, we're sick of it, you know? So they, mm. they, that was their, what, what caused them to go clean or rather to, to abstain that, that, that might be a better terminology. Yeah. That, that was really all I wanted to mention about that. How do you guys feel about Deloused the record? Like what's your take on it now? Having spent the last week reacquainting yourself with the Mars Volta. Oh, I've spent the last 15 years reacquainting myself with Mars Volta. <laughs> <laughs> I adore That's Deloused. The- that's the one that I it never really went away for me. I think that's the one that I would at least once a year play again, you know, after my peak period with it. It's it's probably my favorite. And then we'll get into what we think about the, the rest of them. But Francis is my favorite, but to last is very close behind. It's the one that I would recommend to anybody as an entry point into their catalog. And I think it's an amazing debut. I think it's some of my, as a bassist, it's some of my favorite work from Flea. As a, not a huge Red Hot Definitely. Chili Peppers fan, I think he really shines on it. I think the collaborations are on point. I think it's fantastic. It doesn't sound like Flea, but Flea kills it. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like hearing that. Whenever I listen to that record, I'm always, my first thought is, holy shit, John Theodore. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, <laughs> Which yeah. Which is kind of <laughs> my thought about the first three Mars Volta records in general. It's like, where did they fucking find this guy? Who is he? Like, yeah, he, one of the, like the best rock drummers. And he's like since gone on to play in, you know, Queens of the Stone Age. And he's like a, a big fucking deal rock drummer. I was just going to say they knew John Theodore. Um, and I only started listening to this band in the last few years. But John Theodore was in a an instrumental, I guess, math rock, prog rock band called Golden. They weren't that big. They They, they still are not very like well-known but their records were were really like well well loved and well regarded in that in that time and and they were mainly just like who is this kid playing on these golden records and it was john theodore and that was how Mm -hmm. they they started you know jamming after de facto was they were just like we want to play with this drummer you know so it was it was kind of like a a random diamond in in the music scene you know Right. And then throwing, regardless of what you think of Red Hot Chili Peppers music, like one of the most professional bass players in rock music on top of that. And you've got like an incredibly killer rhythm section right out of the gate. Yes, definitely. And, And the interesting part was they they didn't have a bassist. It wasn't like they were like, we want Flea, like Flea is going to be our bassist. Like they were like, we have no bassist who can play bass on this record. And it wasn't even that they wanted Flea in the band. They were like, we need a session musician. And Flea was like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'll be your session bassist. And it was it was just as casual and simple as that. It's super weird. And this is through Rick Rubin, who produced Californication. Yes. Um, yeah. And there's th- that also opens up the door of like the Mars Volta's production style. And it's very much like, to the 2000s it's a very 2000s production style in a lot of ways mm-hmm. uh very loud very compressed like californication is obviously a record that is sort of like infamous for being completely brick walled and super slammed oh totally yeah we should definitely touch on on the, the rick rubin relationship a little bit um we watched that nardwire interview and that was really interesting to hear from from their mouths well yeah i mean from their mouths they say that he he the vocals are the thing you know and the vocals are the song he's a, he's a pop record producer for lack of a better word and in sort of like centering the vocals in the mix and i think with a band like volta that's could potentially go very wrong i don't think it does on delouse but there's so much texture involved in the voice even in some of those later mm-hmm. yeah. records too. Uh, I think Cedric's pretty clean 
on Delouse for the most part. I mean, I think there's mostly delays and some distortions, but compared to some something like Bedlam, it's a pretty clean yeah. vocal take. For the uh, uninitiated, Rick Rubin is uh, famous for working with everyone from Run DMC to Slayer to Beastie Boys, Kanye West. Johnny um, Cash. Johnny Cash. He's worked with everyone, everyone in hip hop, rock, metal. He is known basically for being Rick Rubin. Like he is not tied to any one genre. So seeing him work with the Mars Volta was was really wild. But yeah, in that in that uh, interview, they basically said that Rick Rubin wanted to wanted to make their music accessible, wanted to make it appealing to the common person the common listeners ears but omar and cedric wanted to go the exact opposite way they wanted to make music that would make people uncomfortable and would would be more stylistically satisfying than something that was approved by rick rubin that creates a really cool stylistic balance on that record i think like that's exactly what makes that record special is its balance between these like really amazing rock hooks and like vocal hooks on so many of the songs like i when i think of like each song if you were to sing me the vocal line i'd be like yes that one exactly you know? yeah which i don't know would be the case for some of their later stuff yeah um, it is the most vocal centric mars volta record in my opinion yeah and then having that play against that incredibly dense thick powerful rhythm section that we described and then having yeah. omar sort of fill the gap in between with these like very phased out guitars it's a really immediately yeah. ear catching sound as, as far yeah. as rock debuts go it's like one of the best a super interesting element for me too with Deloust is that, you know, obviously Jeremy Ward's passing was a big, big thing with it. But before the album was released, it was completed with his input. So all of the soundscapes, all of the like bizarre noises are not just Omar's guitar, which is something that when I was first listening to the Mars Volta, I was like, this was all made on guitar. And that was not the case. It was Jeremy Ward, you know, having this extensive background as an ambient musician, as a uh, someone that uh, sampled music and all this stuff. He brought that to the textures on Deloust, which then Rick Rubin took and incorporated into this, you know, polished, accessible sound. And like, what other band do you know that had a sound manipulator in their band? Like that alone was very unique. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially on that like major label level. Like that's just something that I think probably tuned a lot of our generation onto the possibilities of having an extended lineup like that. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And that's a, a part of their sound that they'd push even further on their second record. My personal favorite. Yeah. Uh, Francis, the mute. Um, before we go into Francis, the mute, we should take a very quick tangent into discussing them as a live band and specifically the document of them as a live band, which is the live album scab dates. I'm not sure yeah. if either of you have listened to it. Oh yeah. Not not it's, in a very long time. It's at I least worth admit. mentioning. It's it's an interesting <laughs> one. Totally. I think I think this is like if you watch videos, listen to scab dates and watch videos of them from the era after Delouse came out. I think it's a perfect synthesis of that of the like the best of we of what we saw from Cedric and Omar's live energy as members of At the Drive In with this band that just kind of hits on all cylinders and has some extremely competent improvisation moments. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I think they get panned a lot or they got panned a lot for the idea of sort of like noodly or whatever jamming. But, um, you know, they clearly listen to the best free jazz, the best noise music. They understand it. They know how to improvise as an ensemble extremely well. And 
I guess have we all seen them live? Did it, did you, did you ever see? I them never got the chance to see the Mars Volta, and I will regret it forever because even if they reunite, it will not be the same Mars Volta. Totally. Mm. I, I got to see them on the Bedlam tour, and it was one of the best shows ever that I've seen. And uh, very jealous. I don't know. I think I think this I think Scab Dates is a pretty convincing document. Yeah. All I'll say about Scab Dates, it has a really really high reputation among Mars Volta fans, and it's one of the only albums, like live albums, that I would say that I have been told is essential for that band. So when I listened to, you know, I listened to the shit out of Delaus, I knew every single nook and cranny of those songs. And then listening to the Scab Dates versions is super interesting because they almost just use Delaus songs as a starting point and they they end up in a completely different place. Scab Dates was also the first recording that we heard Juan Alderete, who is the uh, was formerly the bassist of Racer X, who were a shred metal band in the 80s featuring the great Paul Gilbert. Juan was the basis of that band, you know, he had the long hair, the 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 glam rock haircut, you know, that that was what Racer X was. So for that guy to be in the Mars Volta was super cool cuz like I only like slightly knew of Racer X, but he did not sound like he did in Racer X at all. He was bringing all these wacky bass effects, bass delays, tremolos, all this stuff. And on Scab Dates specifically, the dude still in 20, 2019, 2020 talks about, oh yeah, this is that bass sound that I have on Scab Dates. And it's like so interesting that the band themselves still thinks of that album so fondly. And like they almost talk more shit about the Delouse process than they did about you know, the, the scab dates recordings and shows, but, uh, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it, it was just interesting to me, like in context of Deloused, I think it's a really, really fascinating live album, a lot more noise elements, a lot more long jams. They, they, uh, brought in elements of Francis, the mute songs early on. So they would transition from one part of a Deloused track into a section of a Francis, the mute piece, then go back into the Deloused track. Like it was really no, no holds barred. And I really appreciate that about that album. Yeah, it kind of speaks to so much of like the criticism of because I I would hear all the time like you could catch Mars Volta on a good show or a bad show and you just never know oh, yeah. like the exactly what the quality is going to be and I think some of that comes down to the kind of like improvisatory and drafting elements that they would do during their shows like you're talking about them working out exactly. Like, Francis the Mute material before we even know that that's what it is and that takes like a lot of patience on the part of the audience to go along with an artist there in a way they're they're using you know their their tours as a rehearsal space for future material and fans are just like eating it up you know like whether or not it's it's tight whether or not it makes sense it's pleasant to listen to like you're getting like fans were getting the scoop on like what would be future material and for better or worse you know that was what it was. That's what you were getting when you were seeing the Mars Volta in this era. And I think you can sort of see how that informed Francis the Mute as well, because the songs are all very long with the exception of The Widow. Yes. And there's a lot more noise. There's a lot like they don't the way I described it once to a friend is it almost feels like you're visiting islands in a like sea of, of sounds, you know, oh, yeah. like you're like hopping from one island to another in these very like dense uncertain areas in between yeah which is a really really cool structure for a record i think this is like the best north american prog rock album if such a thing could be <laughs> said to exist at all i think i it's completely this one. agree yeah yeah 
I, I think I also agree. I, again, I, differentiating between what I think is my favorite, which is Delouse, and what I think is probably the best, which is Francis. I also think it, it betrays a mentality in Omar that a lot of folks who would pan the band in some of these articles we looked at sort of miss the mark on is that he's more like a filmmaker. This sounds so pretentious, but I think it's real. He, he's more like a filmmaker or a writer who uses sound rather than a musician in this context in terms of the sort of episodic nature of the structure of how he likes to make these long things work i think there's some people seem to tend to have problems with these 30 minute long songs that sort of deviate and come back and there's sort of these like cuts that are like sometimes really jarring sometimes take a long time i think he thinks of them his structures in a much more uh takes inspiration from much more disparate art forms than somebody who's just trying to make a rock record I don't believe that's pretentious at all, uh, only because Omar has said so himself. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's just accurate. This is all, that also will, goes directly into something I wanted to mention, which was their recording method and their their production method for that record specifically, which is to say Omar was like, this will be my record. I'm going to compose this record and they will be my band to play the music that I've composed. And not only did he write every note on that you know he had the entire band record every track separately from each other they did not hear the full the full completed work with all of the pieces he he would bring juan into the the studio give him a metronome the metronome was playing the tempo and he had to learn his part as it was written for him without context of the grander scheme of the band. He had John Theodore come in and play drums along to a click track without knowing the grand context, any any melody, nothing. He just had to learn the rhythmic structure of his drum part and play it exactly as it was written, with Omar being like, okay, that was a good take, that was a bad take. And they, they thought of every single track as its own piece. So he was like, okay, this is an awesome performance. And then he stitched them all together. So this is, you know, com- plays completely contrary to every other record that not only they made, but that most people made, which is you would play it live. Everyone would write it together. You would hear the full song. In this case, the only person that knew what the final track sounded like was Omar. No one else. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them had an issue with that, mainly Ike Owens, I know, because he stated that he his favorite thing about the band was them vibing off of each other and bouncing ideas off and playing live but with francis that was not the case at all it was omar having this vision in his head and realizing it individually through every single individual performance well this is not a very uncommon thing in the progressive jazz and classical composing i mean it just sounds like he's that's how i understand it is is he's composing music yeah in an almost more traditional sense than he was drawing more from a lot of the like um you know latin music composers that that operated this way and bringing that into like the rock you know prog rock context and i found that super interesting yeah i mean this is the record that i think has the most obvious nod to the latin music roots as well it's got like the salsa breakdown that's pretty much like dead center in the middle of the record uh, which is like to date, maybe like my favorite Mars Volta moment is the oh, yeah. transition from the faster, like and funk part of Elvia, Elvia? into the salsa yeah. bit. Ooh, oh my oh, God. Yeah. It's That's so del- sick. Delicious. Yeah. And there's also the, the, the more, the obvious like Morricone nods in Miranda. You know, mm-hmm. Again, like, yeah, they got the spaghetti Western influence there. Mm-hmm. We should talk about the concept of Francis the Mute. We yes. don't have to get into yeah. it super heavily, but I've, I always found it super interesting. So obviously Jeremy Ward, former member of De Facto and the Mars Volta, passed away a month before DeLoust. And 
in his time in the Mars Volta, he was a repo man. And at some point he repossessed a car that had, he had no idea, no knowledge about the owner, nothing, but in the glove compartment of the car, he discovered a diary and in the diary was written an account of the author who was adopted which Jeremy Ward was also adopted. They had similarities in their lives uh, besides the adoption. They, they were both in a, a search for their biological parents. The person in the, in the diary, uh, you know, met a string of people that, that pointed him in the direction of, you know, finding their biological parents and, and their, their background and everything. You know, Jeremy found this diary, and after he passed away, after DeLoused, they were looking into this diary and were like, man, this is a super fascinating tale. And almost as a tribute to their to their you know long long gone friend now they wanted to use a diary as a basis for the concept so cedric made the protagonist of francis the mute you know the the narrator or the the um, protagonist of this this diary uh and the album every song is you know named after a different person and the idea is that the main character of this uh story is meeting all these different people that are pointing them in the direction of you know their their biological parents and their past and everything and i really don't know anything too much beyond that in terms of specifics but with that context reading the lyrics is is really interesting and and changes the the meaning of the record in a lot of ways I think this is a, a great opportunity for us to talk about the Mars Volta lyrical style at large. Yes. yes. Because this is another point where I think a lot of people are going to get maybe a bit turned off by the band because it is it is the thing that makes them maybe the the hard it's if their music, you know, we've mentioned all of these like points of reference that you can use to get into it, but their lyrics are very impenetrable. The lyrics are really hard to tie to any sort of influence in the same way that the music is because like Cedric was was dabbling in, in it a little bit and at the drive-in. Um, when I first discovered the Mars Volta, this was how Cedric's lyrical style was described in what I read. It is surreal, grotesque, and uh, incredibly experimental. And I think that's a really good, you know, summary of his style. Um, he, he likes to use a lot of really, really vivid imagery, a lot of like vi- violent and gross imagery, but a lot um, of surgical language, a lot of surgical language, a lot of um, just really bizarre, like intentionally bizarre and disorienting uh, combinations of words. For, for me, his style is it doesn't need to make sense. It's just got to evoke something. And it's it's better when you don't necessarily think about the meaning. It's kind of just like word art in a lot of ways. Even though he did have a lot of deeper meaning, I feel like his main goal was to use the the, the spoken word, the written words stylistically, and then kind of figure out the meaning. You know, mm-hmm. Frank. I know that you when we pulled up the old like Deloused story book that like kind of breaks down the Deloused concept and is written in the same sort of language as the the lyrics themselves. We both kind of all started mentioning like William S. Burroughs yes. yeah. as a point of comparison. And I feel like you, you were kind of gearing up to give a take. So I'd, I'd love to hear what you're. Yeah. I think it sort of splits the difference in a lot of ways between William S. Burroughs and that whole sort of like post psychedelic New York poetry scene, but also like the tradition of Latin American magical realist literature at large i Definitely. think that can't be ignored in his influence um i can't cite specific writers that i know that cedric is a fan of but it just is it seems very apparent to me that if you look at his lyrical style in the context of that tradition 
and the values of that tradition, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Just want to mention magical realism is attributed to the Colombian author, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So yeah. shout out to him. And uh, I'm sure Cedric was influenced by his novels um, and that, that scene especially. But uh, uh, it was interesting seeing how that even stretches back to At the Drive-In because I feel like less than than the musical you know ties between them i feel like lyrically at the drive-in and mars volta still really had a lot of lyrical similarities in terms of cedric's style like it would evolve but it was very much like cedric writing it you know totally but i think francis the mute has some of his wackier lyrics um for better or worse and it's still like super funny some of the lyrics that he put on there that are that are really ridiculous um let me let me pull up some of them are extremely funny but it's also interesting because i bet some of the ones that some of us would find funny other people would also find to be like the like the creepiest or the most impactful oh because i think of cassandra gemini as the song that like gets under my skin the deepest like yes definitely so um he is writing about something and what he is saying is not that. <laughs> so um, when he's saying there was a frail syrup dripping off his lap dance lapel, like that's just like, <laughs> like who would write something like that? In music? That's just like jizz basically. Yeah. Yeah. His orifice icicles hemorrhaged by combing, combing her torso to a pile. Just like, crazy shit but I love my it. favorite my favorite <laughs> lyric on the record is probably i always wanted to eat glass with you again oh that's a beautiful line because yeah. it is it's almost a normal sentence yeah right yeah <laughs> it is and a so, normal sentence structurally it is a normal sentence yeah like yeah. i always wanted to verb action noun with you again but eating glass in that i don't know there's just that, that that and that's what marquez does so well in his novels is that there's it's almost just realism. Yes. You know, it's like it's the stories of these very real people, often working class is sort of like the stories of these communities. But there's just something that's slightly from another dimension. Yes. Right. Like a, a lyric like heaven's just a scab away. I'd like to see you after just one taste. I don't need to know what that means. That's just a sick lyric, you know, and that's that's mm-hmm. a lot of why I appreciated Cedric, because you you can interpret his lyrics however you want but at the end of the day like his humor his his creativity comes across and you could you could read it as a funny lyric you can be totally serious about it and you can still appreciate it all the same and it embodies this other world and it doesn't present it as this like oh i'm bringing you into this other place like he creates an entire body of uh narrative structure that just lives in that space yeah definitely The, the Marquez comparison is really apt because I, I believe that he once described magical realism as it was. A, I think that's a term that like the like, quote unquote, Western literature sort of applied yeah. to yeah. his work. It's not like something that he like described himself as. But in talking about the term, he said, well, like if you grow up in South America post World War Two and like the CIA is you know funding these death squads that are making your neighbors disappear yes. never to be seen again like are the things that i'm describing in my novels that crazier than what the actual history of these places are totally and that's a really good comparison with the mars volta too because as we've described there's all of this like trauma and drug use and death yeah that gets instead of being spoken about directly is spoken about in this like wave of illusions and metaphors and like 
puns within puns and stuff like that, that like keeps you from being able to see the, the actual source material clearly, mm, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. I wanted to, uh, pair off of that, but, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, he has said that a lot of the magical realism style is directly tied to the culture in, in Latin America, you know, in Colombia, where over here there is a much more clear um, line between realism and the supernatural or anything, anything sort of outside of the mundane life, where I feel like in South America, that line is a lot more blurred. People are a lot more superstitious. People are a lot more religious. People believe in, you know, a lot of indigenous uh, beliefs, uh, spiritual beliefs and all that. And all of that is sort of mixed together in this like really interesting cultural stew. And I feel like that specifically was what he was saying. It's like, in South America and Central America, all that it pe- people aren't as put off by it. Whereas here, mm-hmm. it's this like special thing, and I feel like the Mars Volta really took from that that vibe or that attitude, you know, that that blending of cultural beliefs. I guess that wasn't mm-hmm. they, they didn't really draw from the the American one more so the the Latin American one. I would say. Well, apply that sort of unreality to what it must have been like to grow up in El Paso, like a border town, yeah. you know, and to be a Mexican American and to have. To, to to sort of live in both worlds as a hardcore kid who was yeah. Latino, you know, I, I, that's what I think I'm not, I don't think that this, his style or, or their style in general was in need of redemption, but that sort of like redeems it for lack of a better word, sort of like gives you a through line to understanding, you know, the source material. I think at, at the drive-in was fascinating to me as a kid because they were one of the only post-hardcore bands from that era I can think of that only one member of the band was white. And that was just fascinating to me on its own. Cause like that wasn't something that you really saw and them being a border town, you know, they had that direct connection to Mexico. They wrote a lot about it and, you know, like uh, invalid litter department is, is about the um, maquinarias in Mexico, the factories and the mistreatment of the workers. So they had that, that connection to, to South America and Latin America already in place. And it's worth noting that like Frank, you, you used a really good word there, which is redemption or redeeming, you know? And the yeah. reason that I think that that word comes up to you is that none of this stuff is ever addressed in any of the criticism of the Mars Volta during it's their true. run. Yes. <laughs> no, like, it's, it's no wild. No one talked about any of this. Like, so we should talk about the reception. Now we've got a few of their records under our belt. Let's, let's, Talk about the critical reception to this band. Yeah. Very dated. Extremely <laughs> dated. Like, I, I was shocked, like, reading those back. It's like, wow, this is a very mid-2000s Pitchfork take that I'm being mm-hmm. presented with right now. <laughs> Pitchfork gave Francis the Mute a 2. Out of 10. <laughs> um, their reviews, their rankings from Mars Volta Records never topped past a 6. And I even feel like that six is almost like a passive aggressive insult to the band at that point. But it's not just Pitchfork because like Pitchfork obviously is like a big name. So it's the first one that comes to mind. But NME were incredibly brutal about the Mars Volta. Even places like the AV Club that you'd think might be a bit more amenable to them also hated the Mars Volta. They got bad press pretty much constantly during their existence. Which is interesting because they're also, you know, they've got John Frusciante on their record and they're, you know, touring with Red Hot Chili Peppers and System of a Down. Like, they're a huge band that the press has just decided not for us. (laughs) It's really interesting going back and reading a lot of those reviews because you can definitely tell that the people that are writing these reviews do not have the familiarity and the vocabulary 
to think of their music in context of their influences. So they were not familiar with Prague. They were not familiar with salsa. They were not familiar with all this stuff. At best, they were like, okay, we kind of know at the drive-in. We kind of know Pink Floyd. We know like King Crimson, like, like a lot of these things, but they weren't really thinking of them in those terms. They were like, these are these weirdos making these long songs that are unlistenable and thir- who makes a 30 minute song on a major label record. Like that's the context they were thinking of. They were not well-studied people that could appreciate all of these dis- disparate influences that they were drawing from, you know, in my absolutely opinion. not. And what was, what was it? Who were, who wrote that quote about like nothing good ever came of free jazz? Oh, that was an enemy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, it's and like, you know, Francis was drawing from Bitches Brew and Miles Davis. That was like one of Omar's favorite records of all time. And right. that record is not accessible at all. And like, it's legendary, but I can't see people being like, like someone like NME in that era reviewing Bitches Brew and being like, oh, this is fantastic. You know, like that's not a record <laughs> right. that was made to be likable. And I love that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, let's let's cover the other lineup changes, especially as they relate to the band going forward. Yeah, so the most interesting thing to start off is Francis was one of the first records that John Frusciante was their session guitarist. And Omar intentionally, he wrote, composed all of his guitar parts. He decided all the facts, all that stuff. But he wanted to step back and view his own work from the, the lens of a producer. So what he did was he got John Frusciante from Red Hot Chili Peppers. Frusciante played keyboards on one song on Deloused, but he did not appear on Deloused otherwise. But on Francis, he played all of Omar's parts. And going forward, Francis and Amputecture in particular, uh, I believe Bedlam actually too, but John Frusciante would play all of Omar's parts in the studio, which is super bizarre. Because when you what you're hearing was written by Omar, it has the soul of Omar, it sounds like him, it's produced just like his parts would be, but he's not the one playing them. I always found that fascinating. No no other band really did that in that way to get someone so popular to just be your session guitarist. Like, that's kind of awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I mentioned before, but uh, Juan Alderete joined the band on bass. He was their main bassist, and Francis was the first record that he he played on he said since that he's that's the thing he's most uh, proud of in the entire Mars Volta career that he was in was Francis but they also brought in Adrián Terrazas González who was a uh, Mexican-American saxophonist woodwind player clarinet like he, he played a bunch of different instruments they brought him in to do a lot of the uh, brass and horn arrangements on Francis the Mute Marcel Rodriguez López who's Omar's younger brother was brought in he played a lot more auxiliary per- percussion some uh some keys stuff but he was also like another extra member uh live mm-hmm. and that was the mars volta like this lineup is classic volta everyone that was in deloused plus all of the mentioned individuals like for the majority of fans this is the prime mars volta lineup yeah i, I think it's it's definitely worth pointing that that note out about this being the classic lineup because that's always an interesting thing that i find with bands is like what happens once they've like made their breakthrough big record that sort of defines them as a band, what yeah. they do next with all of that experience in their back pocket, which brings us to Amputecture. Yes. I go like super back and forth on this album. Mm-hmm. Like there are days like when we were doing our prep, I was listening to it and I was like, this is an amazing record. And then there are other days where I listen to it and I'm like, I can't get through this. Amputecture is pretty impenetrable. Yeah. But it's got... It's got some of their best material, in my opinion. I agree with that. I think it's too long. I think that's my main problem with it is that it's it's so much information, so much good information, but it's about 
one or two tracks too long yeah. to me. I, I have one one final thought on uh, Francis, which we should mention. Mm-hmm. Francis is a bizarre record. It has super long songs. The last song is 30 minutes long. It was released on a major label and it was edited like crazy. The last song was split into eight different tracks in order to make it more palatable commercially. And they released and Alvia and The Widow. sales on the iTunes like, exactly. store as well. Yes. Yeah, that's true. So The Widow and Alvia were released as radio singles. And Francis the Mute, as bizarre of a record as it was, sold pretty well and was really popular. Like it was commercially successful. So I just thought that that's really important to mention because Deloust and Francis being such different records were both extremely successful commercially. So mm-hmm. we can move on to Amputecture. <laughs> yes, which is the the first record of theirs that I bought. Oh, really? Okay. Strange introduction, certainly. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes your temporal lobe or the kiosk in your temporal lobe is shaped like Rosalind Carter, and that's just <laughs> how it is, you know? Final album with John Theodore. Yeah. Sort of pointedly not a concept record, they said. Yeah. Uh, in interviews prior to it, although I think that there is kind of like a few running themes of like Catholic imagery and it's like sort of what I think of as their religious record. Yeah. But I don't I don't know if it like coheres into a statement. Yeah, there's a lot of Christian imagery, a lot of Islamic imagery, a lot of well, I guess Judeo Christian would be would be more accurate, but uh they definitely uh, drew from a lot of uh religious stuff, a lot of like like cult stuff, a lot of the occult. Amputecture was written when they went to Amsterdam. They doing a lot of weird stuff there. They did a collab with well, Omar and Cedric did a collab with Lydia Lunch. They collaborated with Damo Suzuki from Khan. They were doing a lot of a lot of Omar solo band playing during this period. So a lot I feel like a lot of that really influenced what Amputecture would become. They would have a lot mm-hmm. more uh, for lack of a better word, there was a lot more pretension behind Amputecture than Francis the Mute. And a lot of people like that about it and a lot of people got really turned off by it for that reason they they really amped up the weird and this was the first one i feel like that lost a lot of that accessibility that their first two really did well you can tell that they're starting to use like the studio as an instrument yeah even more like closest thing it has to a title track uh mecha amputecture is actually like a pretty straightforward tune yeah by their you know, standard, but they do all these insane sound manipulations, like these sort of dub techniques that we've yeah. talked about that make the song feel way, way, way more out there than mm-hmm. the underlying music would lead you to believe. Yeah, definitely. The uh, The interesting part about Amputecture for me is that it has a bunch of tracks. It's not like Francis in that there's only a few tracks that are super long, like Amputecture has more more uh, tracks quantity wise, but really for me the big standouts for it are the song Tetragrammaton, which is about you know thirteen minutes. I forget how long it is, but it's pretty 16, damn long. Sixteen, I believe. Sixteen, yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> and Day of the Baphomets, which is also a beast of a song. And then from there on, you know, it's it's kind of like take it or leave it. Like I'll hear a song and I'll love it one day, and I'll hear the same song uh, two weeks later and be like, I'm not feeling this. But those for me are the really immortal tracks from that record i think viscera eyes is one of their best pop bangers that they yeah, ever put out. yeah that's the most successful yeah. track on the record for sure as well Deepest as like the groove only... on the the record you got the bilingual thing going on it's, it's an yeah. amazing performance yeah. from juan really anchors the whole thing definitely so also uh during architecture era they had uh 
Paul Hinojos from At The Drive-In, the bassist of At The Drive-In, join as second guitarist and sound manipulator. So he was playing a lot of Omar's rhythm rhythm parts while Omar was doing the soloing, and he was doing a lot of uh, Jeremy Ward's sound manipulation, the, the textural stuff that you were talking about, Ian. Paul Hinojos mm-hmm. was brought in to replicate a lot of that live, and another member in an already massive live lineup. That was what the Amputecture lineup was. And interesting part was that lineup uh, performed on Henry Rollins' show. For me, that is one of the most legendary Mars Volta live performances is them on Henry Absolutely. Rollins. When I was doing my micro-review series earlier in the year, like, yeah. and I did Amputecture, a bunch of people hit me up being like, yo, that Henry Rollins performance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Super like legendary, a- yeah. So just to be clear, uh, just for people who might not know, during this era the sound manipulator uh, role included, I think this is when Cedric started using uh, that sort of differently diaphragm mic that had more of like the tape big grip situation happening. And then the sound manipulator would be triggering the vocal effects. Did that happen during the Deloused era? Um, I believe show as well. That was what Jeremy Ward was doing. They had, you know, Cedric's vocals and a lot of the other instruments routed into like a bunch of pedals and Jeremy Ward was doing all that. And yeah, and Paul was doing that later on. One of the things I I touched on earlier about Amputecture, which is fascinating, was John Theodore recorded on the album, but almost immediately after recording, he left the band. After recording, they brought in Blake Fleming, who was in the the very first drummer the Mars Volta ever had. They brought him back for a short tenure to do a tour. We're not feeling it. Blake Fleming left in a few months. You know, his entire time in the Mars Volta from the beginning until Amputecture still was less than a year. Then they brought in DeAnthony Parks, who would be the drummer later on, to finish off the tour. And then after DeAnthony Parks left, they brought Thomas Pridgen. Shout out Gospel yes. Chops. Love you, Gospel so Chops. So four, four drummers throughout the Amputecture era alone. That's always been fascinating to me. And yeah. one thing, I was talking with friends yesterday about this, which which made me realize every drummer that has ever played in the Mars Volta was in the Amputecture era. So that's kind of fascinating. <laughs> Wait, Thomas Pridgen was in the Amputecture era? Oh, at the very end. Like right like wow. in between Amputecture and Bedlam. Like he he played on like the last shows or whatever. But yeah. I would like to, to carve yeah, out the unavoidable uh drummer world zeitgeist. Yeah. <laughs> moment to talk about Thomas Pridgen. Yeah. Yeah, I was um, about to say. <laughs> this is a good transition. Because... I don't think we need to spend too much time on Amputecture. I think we Yeah. Do. Yeah. <laughs> so it's important for me to say that like Thomas Pridgen joining the Mars Volta was a thing that was a big deal to me like uh-huh. at the time because I <laughs> knew who Thomas Pridgen was because of how like popular he was in like drum circles online you know totally like yeah. drummer forums uh shed videos like the gospel chop series especially yeah. like really put him on he was like a hyped like recruit basically like he was going to show up in a great band at some point he's already in wicked wisdom at this point which is like not (laughs) not really the same kind of level but wicked wisdom was jada pinkett smith's uh metal band for anyone that doesn't know (laughs) yeah that scientology metal you know yeah if if that's what you're into so he was like the first he was the first round like football draft pick for mars volta like he was yeah. like the one that was going to be put on a good team at some point and he made it. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's how it <laughs> felt. It was like my favorite college athlete joining my favorite team. Totally. You know? So and one last thing, one last thing I want to mention about Amputecture mm-hmm. before we move on to Bedlam. Um, if we want to just talk about the sound of it, I think just focusing on Day of the Baphomets is really interesting because Day of the Baphomets begins with a Juan Alderte bass intro. Uh, like the cra- one of the craziest bass solos I've ever heard in my life. 
apparently it was recorded in one take. Omar was just like Juan shred and Juan just played what became the bass intro to day of the Baphomets and day of the Baphomets in the middle of the song has an extended bongo solo by Marcel Rodriguez Lopez. Those Super two things sick. are the most badass yeah. things on Amputecture, in my opinion. So just I learned that shout I love out that to both of them for that. For oh yeah. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. I love this, the setup for the, the bongo solo as well, how they're clearly like the song is pretty fast paced up yeah. until that point. And then they have these like big whole notes. Yeah. Like in they this ascending it pattern, it's like, yeah. you better get ready for yeah. this shit. <laughs> yeah. So, so and, and another thing to note is on the Amputecture tour, they toured with Red Hot Chili Peppers. So like seeing mm-hmm. them play Day of the Baphomets with Flea and like all these other people coming on stage to jam with them and then Chili Peppers playing like what a way to follow up the Mars Volta. Like that's so wild. I yeah, it did make sense to me on paper at first. The fact that I, besides the relationship, I was like trying to imagine what that was like to ha- to go to that gig. But with this record, it makes sense that they were definitely open for the Red Hat Chili Peppers. This is the most like Chili Peppers adjacent that they get. I yeah, think. definitely. All right, so Bedlam, where that we Bedlam. we're good on architecture. So yeah, Thomas <laughs> Pridgen. We touched a little on Thomas Pridgen. Um, he was the permanent drummer for the Mars Volta. The other, DeAnthony Parks and Blake Fleming were brought in as touring drummers, but they did not officially join the band. But Thomas Pridgen was like, Omar was like, this is our drummer. And that's what they, the lineup that they had for Bedlam, which was the same, you know, outside of the drums. Paul Inojos uh, left the band. They wanted to like kind of consolidate a lot of this stuff. So Paul was not on Bedlam. Do we want to get into the lore, the, the Bedlam story, which is maybe one of the most interesting well, I would like to to finish off the Thomas Pridgen stuff. He's yeah, definitely. A very, Go ahead. Yeah. Very different drummer from mm-hmm. John Theodore. Yes, John Theodore is like basically the like super Saiyan version of like a funk fusion guy. Totally. And <laughs> t- Thomas Pridgen feels like he's coming like several generations later. He's he comes much more from like a like post fusion drum nerd kind of area where it's like a lot of linear chops and a lot of like a lot of notes and so even though john theodore is like an absolute beast and could shred his ass off he was a groove guy yes thomas pridgen can groove he just doesn't choose to the the way that i've always thought of this comparison between the two i I personally prefer john theodore still even though i have a great amount of respect for Thomas Pridgen as a player, but John Theodore to me was always the more, the more natural, you know, groove oriented song oriented drummer where he would play what works for the song. Whereas Thomas Pridgen was like, watch me play. Like I'm going to kill it. I'm going to play the crazy shit you ever heard, but it doesn't necessarily sound as natural. I say this with absolute respect for Thomas Pridgen, but one of my friends uh, described his uh, drumming style as he is so good that he actually sucks. <laughs> and I, and I, yeah. I, I interpreted that personally as in like a, he's so technical and like over the top that sometimes it becomes harder to listen to. Like John, John Theodore, as crazy as he got, you listen to it and you're like, okay, I'm feeling this. Whereas Thomas Pridgen for me always had that disconnect because of his technical skill. Well, I feel like it contributes perfectly to Bedlam as a record because that sort of like acrobatic feat and like the kind of falling off the tightrope energy that it sometimes lends itself to, I think is perfect for the feeling of this record, which is just like Mm -hmm. it's almost at any point about to completely 
fall yeah, apart. I think his parts on Bedlam are absolutely fantastic. It was mainly just me seeing him play the older material that made me think oh, of yeah. that back in the exactly. day. You know, just seeing the, the totally. difference him playing the Theodore parts and I, I, I'm glad that you brought up that feeling that Bedlam has of that kind of like this could collapse at any minute because that mm-hmm. perfectly ties into the concept and making of Bedlam, which yeah. by all accounts seems to have been a complete like disaster in progress at yes, all points. So definitely take it away, John. Okay. So uh, real quick, just touching on the lore of the Bedlam and Goliath, what happened when they were coming off of Amputecture, when they were making an album, Thomas Pridgen was in the band. They went to Jerusalem and in the markets of Jer- Jerusalem, Omar bought a Ouija board. Uh, they brought the Ouija board back to the States. They recorded in the studio. They were they were starting to write what would be Bedlam and Goliath. And a lot of weird shit started happening. By their own accounts, the engineer that was working on that album had a pretty serious nervous breakdown. They had their studio flood twice. As they were recording tracks, the tracks would disappear. They would, they would hit print, and the, the audio file would just be gone. And they would record something. They'd be like, all right, where did that guitar go? They would just have stuff disappear. And, you know... That isn't that that could be some operator error, but on top of that, they were while they were writing, they were using the Ouija board. So like they attributed all of these weird happenings to their continued relationship with this Ouija board during the writing of the album. And for, by their accounts, the Ouija board would speak to them. They they would have developed this, you know, relationship with the Ouija board and the Ouija board would speak to them in different personalities. So under their interpretation, they were speaking to different spirits and the different spirits all had a different voice that they would speak to them in and it would get increasingly more and more sinister. And as the these spirits they were talking to got more sinister, these things started happening. So they were freaking out. They scrapped the record completely, what they were working on. They ended up starting over to what would be Bedlam. But Omar went back to Jerusalem. They buried the Ouija board and all the weird shit stopped happening. So just the fact that they had to go back to Jerusalem to bury that Ouija board, that's just always such a fascinating flourish to the the history of this album. Um, But then they ended up, you know, writing the album that would be Bedlam. It would be influenced by the whole process. And the different tracks in Bedlam were written from the point of view of these voices they were hearing through the Ouija board. So a lot of that like sinister energy that you hear is is inspired by that. So that that always really made uh, that concept of the album interesting to me. I have the vinyl of it. Uh, it's not here. It's at my folks' house. But if you open up the gatefold, there's a Ouija board. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the uh, the songs uh, Soothsayer, Tourniquet Man, all these were the names that the Ouija board told them for the spirits. So they directly took those names. Goliath, no, the main one they said was named Soothsayer. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Easily the Whack, creepiest wacky song shit, wacky the record, shit. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Soothsayer, the opening of Soothsayer, they recorded uh, the chanting and the prayers uh, in the... Uh, I can't remember if it was the Hebrew quarter or the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem, but it's it's chanting from those markets and from the prayer uh, hour, and they use that as the intro for a soothsayer. So and and the outro actually as well. Mm-hmm. Sounds Hebrew to me, but yeah, I need to listen to it more closely. So the interesting thing that I, one of the things that I like about Bedlam, two things. One, the songs are way shorter on the most part. Like it's so, most of them kind of top out at about five six minute range. It's their first album without a song over 10 minutes. Yes. And 
at first that makes it seem like it's flying by like the first like five songs on it or so are like the best ep ever released you know just Mm -hmm. like five perfect prog rock bangers yeah and then it gets fucked up and weird on the second half (laughs) yeah Uh, all of that sort of like audio manipulation stuff the like using the studio and like the dub stuff yeah becomes this like tool that they use as a distinguisher between side one and side two Mm -hmm. where the second half is like you can hear that something is fucking up the album from within is kind of the feeling that it gives you yeah and it, that's, that's such a like filmic touch that I love is this sort yeah. of sense that like, oh, something has gone wrong in this viewing experience. Yes. Um, so it, it's important to note Bedlam, as, as bizarre as it was, as divisive as it was, um, featured one of their most beloved uh, singles, Wax Simulacra, which also won them a Grammy mm-hmm. uh, and was their return to Letterman for the first time since at the drive-in played a uh, one arm scissor. So that was also a huge moment. And that's also one of the shortest Mars Volta songs. It's under three minutes. It's fucking slaps. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great song. <laughs> that was the, that was the YouTube core, uh, Thomas Pridgen drum video. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because yeah. he goes, he gives, they give him some space to just like go off. Oh at the yeah. Very end. Yeah. And it's, it's full like Dave Weckl singles and you know, it's just like, complete insanity that started the the conversation around their their rebirth as a band um so one thing i wanted to mention a really interesting thing for me at the time um at the time youtube was kind of in its infancy like 2008 and they decided to release five simultaneous music videos online as (laughs) as webisode music videos so the videos for wax simulacra aberincula goliath Askepios, and eliena were all released at the same time online and that was that was a really big deal because before that they would air on networks they would whatever but for them to premiere online that was kind of awesome i was gonna say with the the elena video is so strange to me and amazing as a video because with all of the trappings of this like super occult album super you know all the stuff we've talked about about their ambitions as artists this video is like an empty it, it's like a jackass video or something it's like <laughs> yeah it's it's wild because all the videos for those look and feel very diy like like they have a minimal budget and this album was mm-hmm. a major label record on universal and they had all these diy webisode music videos i thought that was super endearing and they're pretty rough but they're also kind of goofy and i i still think they're really funny so the best example of them being deliberately funny which is i think something that people had completely written off about them like you read these reviews that take them so seriously and say like oh these guys are so pretentious and self-serious and then you watch these like webisode videos where they're like smoking blunts in the yeah. operating room or whatever. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was it was really goofy and and I think that no no big band had done that. They were like, all right, we're not premiering it on MTV, TRL, whatever. We're dropping them online and we made them in like a day and it's just us hanging out with our friends. Like, I think it, I think it says something really crucial about their values as a band because it's it says that, again, like the promotional aspect of it is not the place to put their like most earnest like grand scale idea if anything it's it's sort of like a sort of like its own concept thing about like a skate video or something it yeah it reminds yeah. you that they're that there are these punks from el paso who yeah. like love hanging out with each other at a right certain, you know so uh 
moving away from the music videos real quick. Yeah. I wanted to talk real quick about the song Goliath. The song Goliath is one of the longer centerpiece songs in this record. And it was interesting because they had been playing this song live for years. And it was uh, initially named Rapid Fire Tollbooth. And it was released on Omar Rodriguez Lopez's solo record, Se Dice Bisonte No Buffalo, which means it's called Bison, not Buffalo. And that album had a, an early version of Rapid Fire Tollbooth, which would be Goliath. And I, I remember listening to that and being like, yo, when Mars Volta releases this song, it's going to be awesome. And Goliath was that. So that was all really satisfying for fans that had seen it mm-hmm. live for many years to finally hear like a satisfying recorded take on that song. Very different recordings, too, because like yeah. the, the Omar solo version is like way slower and like less guitar based. It's like yeah. more of like a it's almost like a soul song or something mm-hmm. again, the way that it's paced. And then Goliath itself is just like, yeah, holy shit. <laughs> and and Led lyri- Zeppelin sized riffs. Yeah. You know? And and they, they had to do that, that lyrical revamp, you know, to uh, incorporate the, uh, the concept, you know, with the Ouija board and then all those spirits into Goliath. So it had the soul of the original recording and the, the groove and all that stuff, but it, it, it really was its own version. And I think that that's one of the more standout tracks out of Bedlam for a lot of people that was the tour that frank caught him on i caught him on the tour for their next record which i liked the show a lot i had a great time but i understand that this next album is not the favorite for a lot of people so do we want to move on to octahedron yeah we can we can touch on octahedron a little i don't there it was a pretty uneventful period i feel like and it isn't as memorable of a record for a lot of fans. Uh, for me, it is by far my favorite Mars Vol- uh, least favorite Mars Volta record. I don't think it's a bad record. It's just, it's not a thing that I really, like it, it was a thing I'm glad I listened to and didn't really feel like revisiting. And when I revisited it for this, the standouts for me from Octahedron were with Twilight as my guide and Kotopaxi. And it's a really interesting record because at when they started, they basically were like, we are writing the most accessible pop ballad record that we've written. This is not going to be, you know, crazy prog, like jams, whatever. This is going to be a very like straightforward, accessible record. And that's kind of what it was. But I was hoping that it would be a little bit more likable, like considering how watered down the the sound became. They they lost all the extra members. It was a lot more. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Adrián Terrazas González left the band. Paul left the band. Ike Owens was credited on the album, but did not perform on it at all. So it was an album kind of, uh, in a lot of ways, devoid of that large band sound. Uh, it it felt a lot more watered down, for better or worse. What's your take on it, Frank? I like it more than I thought I did re-listening to it for this. Still definitely my least favorite Volta record. But again, it sort of reveals to me the fact that they're a process-oriented project more than a a band. You know, they're thinking more in terms of they have a goal for the record that they want. And in this case, it's a very explicit goal to say we want to make a quote-unquote acoustic record. Yeah. And I think they pulled that off. And it also sort of highlights to me the sort of uh, skeletal structure of pop songwriting that's present everywhere in their catalog. I remember, I can't cite the exact source, but I remember back in the day when I was obsessed with them, hearing or uh, seeing a Cedric interview where she, he 
says, I don't understand why people don't think we're a pop band. We're a pop band. We have verses and choruses. Like, what's what's more to need? And it seems like this is them sort of attempting to sort of respond in some part to the critical response and say, okay, you want a pop record? Here it is. But mm-hmm. doing it in a still sort of authentic way and sort of like coming to the challenge of we can write some sort of quiet. I think the volume is the thing that is different to me more so than the actual sort of like nuts and bolts of the songwriting. It felt to me a little bit of a a troll octahedron in the sense that they knew what fans expected from them and they intentionally wanted to do the opposite while still telling people, yeah, we've always been a pop band. It's like, yeah, you're the pop band that had however many minutes of cocky frogs (laughs) in the beginning of a track as an intro and expected, you know, all these people that bought this major label record to be down down for it you know like well it's to me it's it it, it, that always read as them saying like you think we're free jazz like you guys need to listen to real free jazz yeah the stuff that we like (laughs) yeah like you you think that we're like weird and crazy like you should listen to the shit that we like yeah (laughs) it's not Mm -hmm. that's we're not that i just think it's funny that they made a huge attempt to break away from like what is pop? What is accessible? And then like circled back to like, but we were always accessible. Like <laughs> that's just funny to me. And I agree with that. To be yeah. honest, it's not my, it's definitely my least favorite. Yeah. Of yeah. It's the worst one with Twilight <laughs> as my guide. Absolutely beautiful haunting song about the witch trials. It's unlike anything else. Mars Volta has done. If it were by any other band, I feel like it would have been a much more fondly remembered track, but that's the one when I first read the record and even still I'm like, okay, that's the one from this record. But the mm-hmm. other one that I like Kotopaxi, it seems kind of like an afterthought. Like they made the whole record and we're like, we don't have a Mars Volta track on here. We got to like, think of something. And it sounds like them, like kind of their impression of the Mars Volta. Like it seems like yeah. a very self-aware track and it's good. It's, it's not amazing, but it's, it's definitely like one of the highlights from it for me. It's sort of them in easy mode. Like yeah. I'm sure that there's like a bunch of songs that are like that that didn't mm-hmm. make it on other ones of their records. Yeah, you know? definitely. And that's also sort of how I feel about a lot of the songs on it is that if these had been the ballads on other Mars Volta records, mm-hmm. I would remember them way better. Yeah, But definitely. because they're all fairly stylistically similar and all together on one record, it's just sort of like it never picks up enough steam for those breaks in momentum to feel impactful and yeah you know totally. it's so one note except for you know the <laughs> obligatory mars volta single that yeah. they wrote yeah, for, right on the middle of the album right um and just as a drummer i feel like it's like you just got thomas pridgen yeah that was a big thing have for go me crazy for one record they <laughs> like, they they really like gave pridgen the short end of the stick and octahedron like he plays the parts he's given well but it really it kind of removes his identity as a drummer in a lot of ways i feel like and that was another big thing uh that that rubbed me the wrong way about octahedron I think it's worth noting that around this time, 2009, is when Prague stops being such a dirty word. Yeah. To such a degree, you get uh, this whole wave of bands in indie rock that kind of are blowing up at that time that I think are like very secretly Prague rock bands mm-hmm. like Grizzly Bear and Dirty Projectors yes. and Animal Collective are kind of like 
suddenly the more critically acceptable version of a lot of the ideas that the Mars Volta had sort of been screwing around with totally in stadiums for the rest of the decade and now suddenly are cool taking these wild experimental you know uh tendencies and making them palatable to to the average listener I think is a really big thing that all of those artists did yeah also way wider versions of those ideas true absolutely true and like this is the other thing about like starting at the bedlam era it's yeah there's no white people in the mars volta yeah you know and like john i'd like to have your take on this like what do you think that there's something to the way that like a lot of white critics were not willing to take the band seriously like is it that extreme or am i like overreading into it? no you are you are on the money there so uh my take on it has always been the Mars Volta was a very unique uh, perspective on what it was like to be a Latin American person in a rock metal hardcore band, uh, even going as, as far back as at the drive-in, like their identity influenced, you know, the music, but it was, it was kind of more like their identity within that scene already really set them apart. Uh, and, and in the Mars Volta, they they intentionally drew more from that identity. And I think the the realms that they were drawing from not being this accessible music that everyone was aware of, you know, Latito Puente, Larry Harlow, you know, the, the famous salsa pianist who's Omar's childhood hero, um, all of these, you know, Lat- well, Larry Harlow not being a Latin American person, but being an artist within that that genre. Um, they were drawing from all of those and and kind of in a in a a very positive way shoving them down everyone's throat like people aren't not everyone is going to be familiar with them not everyone's going to go out of the way to listen to them but the mars volta was like you like us you are going to be familiar with these styles and i think that's like absolutely commendable because a lot of the best artists do that like they you know force people out of their comfort zones and a lot of Mars Volta's fans are white people like that's just totally like how it is it's just a fact like they weren't familiar with Latin music they didn't like them because of the Latin music they happened to like the Mars Volta and because they like the Mars Volta that kind of opened them and primed them to be ready to receive these different genres and I think that's really commendable and as far as the critics go the way that they saw them was they kind of played into like a lot of these stereotypes with like you know latin music like that it's like flamboyant that it's excessive that it's like uh it goes nowhere that they're playing all this stuff just purely for energy and not for like melody or not for all this stuff like these are all talking points that critics use to disparage a lot of latin music especially like the more experimental latin music and i think that they went full on in that realm and the fact that critics didn't like it like I think there's definitely an element of that uh, condescension towards Latin music that carried over into the way that they received the Mars Volta. And it also applies some of the, it's like the worst of both worlds where they also get the like negative dirty word connotations of like the super white prog world applied to them, which I don't think is always, I think is very rarely if ever relevant to their music. Especially at the time, prog was like, the one of the widest genres like everyone they were influenced by in the realm of prog in the realm of psych rock that was all white people what they were drawing from in terms of artists that were not white were artists like miles davis artists like dito puente like all these other artists that that were making this incredibly bold experimental music that at the time was ignored critically like it was it was uh much more 
fondly remembered later on than it was at the time. And I feel like that sort of critical, like turning their nose up at all of this, like incredibly forward thinking music made by people of color was a a similar thing that they experienced for those reasons. Like not necessarily purely because of racism, just purely because of that was the, the snobby critical like attitude that was prevalent in like publications like NME, Pitchfork, all this. And they just happened to be another artist on the receiving end of that, you know? Mm -hmm. The thing that I find interesting is one, there are, there are a ton of like progressive rock bands that were working in the seventies from South America, like invisible comes to mind off the top of my head. And it, this like idea that Prague is only white is Mm -hmm. also like, it's sort of a self-defeating prophecy. Yeah. You know, it's like a way to exclude the Mars Volta from Prague in order to keep making fun of Prague. Yeah. And also then that can be used as a cudgel against bands like the Mars Volta. And I I wonder a lot about like, if this band had come out literally 10 years later, how different the critical response would be yeah. to the like the sort of ideas and like influences that they were bringing to the table. Yeah. It kind of like it's obviously it's a question that we can never know the answer to, but when I think about like how Pitchfork of 2020 would review Amputecture. Yeah. Or Francis the Mute, I don't think they'd be giving them scores that well. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> Um, there is still one other Mars Volta record that we need to talk about, but yes. it does sort of feel fitting that we almost jump to the end before talking about it because yeah. it, it does feel like it sort of exists outside of their body of work in a lot of ways. This is Nocturnicate, their final album. Yeah, this is a this is maybe a good time to talk about how the um, Omar solo music relates to the canon of Mars Volta and how it directly tied into the existence of Nocturnicate. What the Mars Volta would do, I guess in between Francis the Mute and Amputecture, especially when they were in Amsterdam, was when Omar really started to release a lot of solo music. And by a lot, like the man has like, what, 20, 25 solo records total beginning around 2006 and actually 2005 and uh, ending, you know, only a couple of years ago. Uh, so so he, he has been pretty consistently releasing solo music. And in terms of playing that solo music live, it was this this very nebulous like members entering and leaving frequently like uh, playing one show with this lineup and then doing another show with a completely different lineup and almost all of these lineups were referred to as Omar Rodriguez Lopez group the Omar Rodriguez Lopez band he would change the name every time and how Nocturnicate plays into that is uh, after uh, Octahedron Thomas Pridgen left the band and basically DeAnthony Parks started jamming with them. They did a tour as Omar Rodriguez Lopez group with everyone else in the Mars Volta. So Omar, Cedric, Juan, DeAnthony, Marcel, and a new member, Lars Stalfors, who was an engineer that, that was friends with them. And he was, he basically took over sound manipulation duties and all that, that lineup toured as Omar Rodriguez Lopez group. They did, they were not billed as the Mars Volta. They played small club shows and what what happened was those shows they were performing the material that would be nocturnicate they were doing a secret mars volta tour for lack of a better term so people went to see omar and what they ended up getting was a mars volta show it sort of feels like a soft relaunch of a new project yeah definitely it doesn't it it feels like the elision between the end of the mars volta which i think it's pretty clear even by octahedron that they were kind of getting tired of the sound that they had built over the course of 10 years and yes. were ready to move on to something different. And so Nocturnicate is like half 
killing off one project and half birthing another. Yes. And it starts off in like maybe the most grating and unpleasant way. Like the whip hand is like one of my least favorite Mars Volta songs. Oh, I love and it. And then it gets really good from yeah. there on out. <laughs> See, uh, one thing we should touch on real quick before we get into the album, um, after Octahedron, they left or they finished their major label contract. They were no longer mm-hmm. a major label band. They had no commitments. They could work on an album at their pace. And what ended up happening was Nocturnicate took forever. It took them almost two and a half years to finish the album. And they ended up signing to Sergeant House, one of my favorite labels. And Sergeant House started an imprint for Omar named Omar Rodriguez Lopez Productions, which he used to release his solo music and which they also released Nocturnicate through. So that was really interesting. They were able to like change up their methodology and release an album like totally on their terms. That also ended up unfortunately taking so long. Like Cedric and Omar weren't really working as closely. It took them almost two and a half years to get Cedric's vocal parts done. And by the time the album was done, it took them almost three years, completely three or four years, I think they said. And almost every member has said they forgot their parts. They were like, (laughs) oh yeah, I recorded this three years ago. I forgot what I even played. Like it took them so long that they were so detached from the music. And the fascinating thing to me is that Omar is known for working on music like one or two albums ahead. So what he's working on right now, he's already working on like two other records that you won't hear for like two or three years or whatever. And Nocturnicate was interesting in that, yeah, they were they were already so detached from this music. They are working on stuff in the future and they were like, all right, we just got to get it out. And that was kind of like that that really muted the impact of that record for me. They were just like, all right, we want to be done with it. It's still good. It kind of feels like the oh, I love it, yeah. that octahedron should have been definitely you know because it feels like the shorter songs the vocal melodies are generally like way lower in pitch compared to the really like super high like high up robert plant-esque sort of stuff that cedric would sometimes do this is much more like conventional like like chest voice from him vocally it reminded me more of his deloused sound Mm -hmm. in general it reminds me a lot Yeah, it reminds me a lot more of Deloused than any of their other records, actually. And it it just sort of feels like this like weird comma Mm -hmm. at the end of their career. And I I wish it was like an exclamation point. Like if Octahedron hadn't happened, but this album had happened instead, Mm -hmm. I'd be like one of the best discographies of all time, like solid statement all the way through. Definitely. Instead, this feels like a hanging particle at like, I don't know. It's weird that I keep using linguistic uh punctuation (laughs) (laughs) to try and describe this album it's such a fascinating record but like its impact wasn't there compared to everything else like when i listened to it yesterday for the first time since release i think like the first thing i noticed about about it was uh d'anthony parks's drumming like his drumming Mm. on this record is absolutely insane and revolutionary it doesn't sound like theodore it doesn't sound like pridgen it's just as technically gifted but it's honestly the most out there drumming like in my opinion on any of the stuff and d'anthony parks i feel like it's worth just like lightly mentioned like touching on his style d'anthony parks he was a drummer for John Cale. He was a drummer for like a lot of major artists. Like he was a session drummer and his identity as a drummer didn't really reflect in those bands. He was playing the Mars Volta for me was the first, like obviously he toured with them on the Amputecture tour playing John Theodore's parts, but Nocturnicate hearing his identity as a drummer for me was what made me such a huge fan of his. And he's like a top five living drummer for me, honestly. And like, not even just because of Nocturnicate, like, 
his other work in Bosnian Rainbows, his solo work, which I urge everyone to check out, his project Techno Self, is uh, him playing drums with one hand and playing a sampler keyboard with the other. And it's purely solo music. It's just him, no one else, no editing, nothing. It's just him playing the most insane drumming with one hand and his foot and a keyboard and that's that's the whole thing he's just like the most experimental revolutionary drummer that omar has worked with in my opinion and his parts on nocturnicate are fantastic he feels the most like connected to a jazz lineage of any of their drummers like he sort of reminds me a lot of like the new york jazz scene since like the 2000s the like really choppy really like tight percussive sounding yeah like I don't know. Frank may have the better terminology to describe the thing that I'm saying, but I, I think you know what I'm getting at. No, I know. I know some of the players you're talking about, like Chess Smith, like yeah. my, people that Mark Rabot awesome. has worked with. Yeah, I think I think that this the ensemble on this record definitely feels more like I, I'm excited to uh, take the dive that I've avoided for years of uh, diving into Omar solo stuff. But from what I've gathered, I've seen Bosnian Rainbows live at a festival once, and I have heard some things and to me this just feels like uh more most akin to an omar rodriguez lopez group record with some cedric vocals tacked on to it i don't know if that's the right take another interesting thing but yeah based on what you just said uh, another interesting thing to me is that knock knock tourniquet is their least guitar heavy record there are guitar parts on all of the songs, but they are mixed really low. They're not really prominent. There isn't much shredding at all. Um, if they're there, it's kind of more this like textural groovy element. It, it, is, it isn't anything like previous Omar, you know, uh, guitar works, but it's interesting that you say it sounds more like an Omar record because to me, it seemed like Omar wasn't as present on that record sonically, you know? But as a composer, mind. no, no, yeah, I know. I'm just saying yeah, yeah, that it's yeah, funny yeah. because that's true. And also, Omar doesn't seem like he's like as present on that record, you know, in in the the grand sound of the band. Yeah, both of you were basically saying that it doesn't sound like the Mars Volta are present on their own album. You know? <laughs> like it doesn't yeah. sound like Cedric is entirely there, and it doesn't sound like Omar is entirely there. I I don't even, even see that. Are, I think. I think it's mainly the mixing priorities were different. Like Nocturnicate is a lot more heavy on synths, drums, and vocals. I think the yeah. bass and the guitar are less standout, even though they're there and they're great. It's just, yeah, sonically, it's just a totally different priority for them. And Marcel uh, moves more to playing a, an auxiliary synth role than auxiliary percussion role. Yeah, Mar- Marcel and Lars Stalfors both played synths, so uh, that's kind of part yeah. of the reason why it's such a synth-heavy record. I'm excited now having come to the end of the this listening project to honestly spend more time with Nocturnicate. I feel like I really yeah. gave it a short shrift in the moment and like I would I'm probably going to revisit that more than I revisit the others just to yeah. like balance it off to some extent. But now that we're basically at the end of it cuz they break up shortly yes. after yeah, Nocturnicate. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't even a hard breakup. It was more of a of a stopping touring and more focusing on Omar solo projects. Uh, there wasn't ever really like a, the Mars Volta is done. It's just kind of, they stopped touring. It was a very like slow decline into their inactivity. Uh, Omar mm-hmm. doing purely solo stuff. And then Bosnian rainbows, which had uh, Omar and D'Antoni. And then, you know, the other project of all their post Mars Volta projects. 
And of course, the at the drive-in reunion that they raked in all the big bucks for. (laughs) Yeah, kind of disappointing. The first time I ever saw Omar and Cedric on a stage together was at the drive-in reunion at Riot Fest 2015. And that was kind of uh, kind of disappointing as much as I loved it seeing them. I mean, I know that there was that insane like figure that Cedric apparently was spending like $300 on weed a day yeah. or something like that. <laughs> so got to get that Riot Fest check to make that habit work. <laughs> I don't I don't even know if that was at the end of the band. That was like at their peak. He was like spending like a whole month's rent on weed. Fucking awesome. Um, but yeah, I feel like at this point we should start kind of wrapping it up. I think yeah. we've made a lot of our, our bigger points about the, the arc of the band and their impact, but... One of the things that's like interesting to me is that there's no modern day equivalent. There's no mm-hmm. band that feels like they've taken the place. I mean, I yeah. guess like the way that people talk about like King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard reminds me a bit of how people responded to the Mars Volta, but it's not. The yeah, same they have some similar. similarities. They got the sprawling lineup. They've got the like prolific quality to their you know releases. They've got you know a lot of the same influences, but. Uh, that there never there will never be another Mars Volta like as as many bands have tried they will never fill that void in my opinion I, I thought it was interesting when we were talking about sort of the identity politics slash like sort of coded uh, racist response to them at the time how it's almost like punishing them for the type of ambition that they had yeah in a way. I can, it's I can like, see that for sure Right. It's like no one else was in a position through their life stories to really tie together these elements in a way. I mean, it sort of takes a long time. It takes generations to sort of have those uh, combinations available to a person. Mm -hmm. And I think that they it's it would be really hard to replicate it on the scale and at the uh, with the level of success that they did in terms of like really smartly pulling from a bunch of different influences and delivering it in a way that was as satisfying. Yeah. And as popular as it was too. Like the fact that they were doing this on such a huge stage and forcing this like much broader conception of what rock music and popular rock music could be onto an audience that was like receptive, but not ready entirely for the, the argument that they were making about music history you know and in my opinion i feel like the audience was more ready than the critics were because the audience was like they were just there they were probably on drugs they were looking to see some crazy shit that was what they were looking for the critics weren't really looking for that like the critics were responding to what they did the audience was actively participating in their, (laughs) their live existence and i really appreciated that about them they always like put the live experience above the recorded one even though the recorded one was always pretty satisfying as well yeah i mean that that about sums it up as best as i can as i can do it so unless anyone either of you have any other parting words about this long live volta rest in peace like yeah. owens rest in peace jeremy ward that's about it Fuck yeah. <laughs> long Hell yeah. Live volta, yeah my guys all right well, thank, well, you, thank you for so the conversation much. it's been great yes. yeah i had a lot of fun yeah this has been lots to think about now awesome <laughs> much to think about <laughs> much to think about <laughs> Thank you again for listening, and thank you, John and Frank, for joining me. You can find Frank's music on Linktree slash Frank underscore Meadows underscore music. If you liked this episode, please feel free to leave a positive rating and review. 
You can check out more episodes on soundcloud.com slash science or through the Apple Podcast app. See you in 2021.